0: Good morning everybody. Um, For those of you who might not have been here in the past couple of weeks, we are in the middle of a series this summer about the church in the first century. And this series is called A People for His Name. And we've been looking at stories in the Acts of the Apostles. And so far we've looked at four different accusations made about the Apostles and their gospel as they spread it. So back in chapter two of acts the holy spirit performed a miracle through the apostles there they spoke in one language and yet were heard by many different people with many different languages but some people in the crowd didn't want to say that that was because of the holy spirit so they came up with another reason they said these men must have had too much wine they're drunk they're not performing a miracle uh they've been drinking all morning the second accusation happened in the city of Thessalonica Um, When the apostles arrived in Greece and came to this ancient city, uh, they started telling people that Jesus is king. And the people there didn't like that because uh, that meant that there was a competitor for Caesar. And so they said these men are making trouble all over the world. When Paul went by himself to the city of Athens, he preached about Jesus and the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And so the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers of the day said, this man is advocating foreign gods. His gods don't belong here. When Paul went on to Corinth, there were some Jews there who said that he was persuading fellow Jews to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law so wherever they go there are accusations made against the apostles and i hope that you've seen over the past month or so that all of these accusations are false in jerusalem the holy spirit was at work in the apostles not wine and the only trouble that the apostles made in thessalonica was the trouble of telling people the truth that jesus is lord when paul was in athens he wasn't advocating foreign gods he was preaching the one true god and in corinth Paul wasn't working against the Torah. He was preaching about the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Torah. Now, this week, there's actually a three-part accusation made against Paul uh, and his preaching. His accuser, this man named Demetrius, says that Paul is dangerous. And these are the three different parts of Demetrius' accusation. He says, all right, fellow craftsmen, first of all, our trade, our business is going to lose its good name. We've got a good reputation. And if if people keep believing him, our trade will come into disrepute. The second accusation is that the temple of our goddess Artemis is going to be discredited. What happens in the temple will be seen as ridiculous. Third, the goddess herself will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now... In America in the 21st century, we're not used to this language. We're not used to pagan temples and pagan gods and pagan sacrifices. But today, the gospel still is dangerous. The gospel is still a threat. And here's what I mean by that. The gospel is always, when it is preached, it's always a threat to someone's wallet, someone's temple, and someone's goddess. Now, I'm going to explain what I mean by that later. But to understand the meaning of that, those words on the screen, I think you have to see the pattern that develops before the riot in Ephesus. You have to see uh, this, this habit that, that keeps repeating three times before the riot. Okay, And here's the pattern in Acts chapter 19. First, God demonstrates his power. In some supernatural way, things that can't be explained by natural causes, you see God is at work in Ephesus. And then the word of the Lord spreads. Word gets around that Jesus really has lived and died and rose again. It it gets to uh, new people who've never heard this before. So what I want to do is walk through the three times this happens and see why Demetrius and all of his fellow craftsmen start up this riot. Because a lot is at stake him okay here's the first example of god's power being demonstrated paul goes into the synagogue and as you've seen over the past few weeks guess what happens wherever he goes he gets persecuted right every single time and yet still paul preaches boldly for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of god now some of them in the synagogue though not all of them become obstinate and they refuse to believe paul but they go one step further and they publicly malign the way basically the way is a euphemism for the church and so they start spreading rumors about them so paul has to leave and he moves on but actually takes some of the jewish disciples with him and instead goes to a new environment he goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. okay this goes on for two years And guess what happens? All of the Jews and Greeks, not just in Ephesus, but in the entire province, the entire region, hear the word of the Lord. Okay, so we have a demonstration of God's power that Paul boldly, without fear, preaches the gospel in the synagogue. And guess what? Even though some of the people there become obstinate, word goes beyond even Paul's own preaching. It gets beyond the city of Ephesus and into the entire region. And so the word of the Lord spreads. That's the first example. The second example to me, this is just amazing. We, we see that Paul, that Paul, by God's power, does extraordinary miracles, okay? And this is, this is the extent of God's power at work in him. Even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Okay? To understand what those verses on the screen mean, you have to know that Paul is a tent maker. Right? This was his job on the side. He never wanted to be paid by churches. He wanted to do this so he could devote all of his energy uh, to preaching. Okay? So this guy, this tent maker, wears an apron and probably has a lot of sweaty rags right, lying around. And I just love picturing someone taking one of those sweaty rags and taking it to a sick person and saying, Here, touch this. It came from Paul and that sick person being healed. Even it says evil spirits leaving people. Demon possessed people are free through exorcism just because of these, these sweaty rags touching Paul. That's how amazing God is at work in Paul. And guess what happens? This isn't a surprise. Some people, seeing this power, want to pretend that they have it as well. We find out that seven Jewish men start trying to do the same thing. They try to drive out evil spirits by invoking the name of the Lord Jesus over those who are possessed. And you've got to listen to their words. They say, when they're trying to free these people, they say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. We We don't know Jesus. We just heard about him through Paul. And then they command the demons to come out. And we find out that that doesn't work. One day... The evil spirit talked back and said, Jesus, I know, very familiar with him. Paul, I know, very familiar with him, but who are you? The man who had the evil spirit jumped on these seven men, overpowered them, and gave them such a beating that they ran out naked and bleeding. Y'all, I don't know how to say this another way, but if you go to a fight with clothes on, And then you leave a fight with no clothes? You lost that fight, okay? You lost, okay? These pathetic pretenders get their backsides handed to them, and everybody hears about what happened. We read, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with this reverential fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus is held in high honor. See, God demonstrates his power, and the word spreads. I love this. Demons will admit that they listen to what Jesus says. We do what he tells us to do, but we don't listen to these pretenders. Okay, here's the third story. We find out that in Ephesus, there's this tendency for people to be attracted to spiritual power in some way, shape, or form. And apparently, there are Ephesians who practice sorcery, and they bring their magical scrolls together, and they... They burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Okay? To just put this in, in their context at the time, a drachma was an entire day's wages, which, we, which means we're talking about 50,000 days wages, which is 137 years of wages just being burned. Okay? These people are converting away from their old way of life, trying to access this dark spiritual power, and they are turning to Jesus. I love this, this, this famous painting of this scene from Scripture. Paul is standing in Ephesus. He's preaching to the crowds, and all these Ephesians are having this bonfire. I think you can see it from the bottom and the smoke rising. And I love that they aren't just lightly tossing in the scrolls. They are... Throwing the scrolls into the flames. This is a vivid demonstration of God's power to convert these people who were very far from him to Christ. And guess what? We read in the very next verse, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Okay, so this pattern over and over again, God demonstrates his power, the word of the Lord spreads. God demonstrates his power, the word of the Lord spreads. But guess what? There are people in Ephesus who don't like the word of the Lord spreading. Because if God is demonstrating his power, then that means that other powers are being defeated, doesn't it? Doesn't it mean that other powers at work in the world are weaker than the name of Jesus? That's why this great disturbance comes about. And this is where we read in verse 23, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made and sold silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business. So clearly he's unbiased, right, in this, in this riot. He calls all of his people together as fellow tradesmen, and he says, my friends, I mean, you know we receive a good income from this business. You can imagine all of them smiling and nodding along. But now you see and hear this fellow Paul who has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. And guess what he says? That gods made by human hands are no gods at all. I mean, for all the people there, that's insane. That is heresy. They can't believe it. And so he says this is dangerous. If people believe Paul, and here's the accusation that we talked about from the beginning, our trade will lose its good name, the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the whole world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Okay, you can tell that everybody in this crowd who hears this thinks there's a lot at stake. Because they, they become furious and they begin shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the entire city is in an uproar. They seize the two first two Christians, they find Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, and they rush into the theater together. Okay little over a month ago, I was on a pilgrimage, and I actually was in the city of Ephesus. I got to go to the ruins of this ancient city, and I want to show you three different pictures. This is the entrance to the ancient library of Ephesus. This is Paul probably spent time studying here before he would go to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. I mean, it's amazing. You can walk up these steps and see where all these books were stored. This second picture is on the road down to uh, the, the entrance to the library. This is an ancient bathroom, equipped with a, an entire sewage system, y'all. It's so advanced that they would run warm water along the, uh, along the sides of it, so that it wouldn't get cold when they sat down. I thought, wow, in 2,000 years, public restrooms have gotten worse. <laughs> These are amazing. Okay, I couldn't help myself. Sorry, I had to show y'all that. Here's the third picture. This is the stadium. I'm taking that picture of football field away. It seats 25,000 people. That's a pretty big theater. Imagine being at the bottom of that theater and 25,000 Ephesians saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And if you scroll just to one more picture, this is the stage at the bottom. Just imagine being just you and Aristarchus right at the bottom with all those voices shouting at you. Here's the thing. When God shows his power, other powers feel threatened. This is, in some sense, ancient history. We believe that this happened 2,000 years ago, and we believe, as Christians, that this is a present reality we face. So I want to give one example. This is not all the examples we could come up with. We could come up with a lot more. But I want to give one example about a modern-day trade, a modern-day temple, and a modern-day goddess that is threatened by the gospel. The modern-day trade is this— The billion dollar sex trafficking industry Enslaves people all over the world The temple where this goddess is worshipped Is every single brothel on this planet And even though the modern goddess that is worshipped Doesn't have a name like Artemis For our sake this morning We will call this goddess pleasure When we read About a story in Acts chapter 19, we think that's something that happened a long time ago, and we don't have to really worry about it. But this is, this trade, this temple, and this goddess is at work today. Now, by God's grace, there are Christians who fight for the end of this evil trade, and there are Christians who go to the darkest corners of the world to rescue women and children from this evil trade. And the gospel truly does discredit this wicked temple, and Jesus Christ really does rob this goddess of her divine majesty. But here's the thing. Every time Christians step up and say anything about these issues... People like Demetrius rise up to defend the trade, defend the temple, and defend the goddess. They rebrand prostitution as sex work. They try to downplay the way that pornography is tied up in the sex trafficking industry, the way that pornography harms and degrades both the participants and viewers. They often accuse the church of being the real enemy because we want to get rid of pleasure. But here's the thing, the logic they use is the same one that Demetrius made 2,000 years ago. This is going to hurt our wallets, the gospel is going to discredit our temple, and the gospel is going to rob our goddess of her divine majesty. Now for Christians, we can't just look at the cultures around us and think we're immune to these issues. Because Christians, we want to protect our wallets too. It's easy to look down on Demetrius and think, oh, he's just out to defend his trade, out to defend his bank account. But many of us are the same way. We try to defend our budgets, defend our possessions, defend our business, defend our purchases. But that makes us no better than Demetrius. Many of us are like the rich young ruler. He ran up to Jesus, and he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man says, teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And so Jesus looks at him, loves him, and says, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And the man's face fell, and he went away. Read that word out loud with me. Sad. He went away sad. Because he had great wealth. We can look around at modern day temples and goddesses and trades that we think the gospel discredits. And that's good. But we have to look into our own hearts and realize we want to protect our trades just as much as Demetrius. Sometime after this riot, Paul wrote a letter to the Christians in Ephesus, and I want to point out something that I noticed this past week. As I reread Ephesians, I realized that Paul writes a lot to these Christians about riches. Six different times, Paul mentions riches. He says, in him we have the riches of God's grace. We've been called to a certain kind of hope, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in his holy people. The third time, he says, God is rich in mercy. The fourth time, he says, we hope that God might show the incomparable riches of his grace. In the fifth time, Paul says that I've I've been called to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. In the sixth time, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you. Is it a coincidence that Paul, in this letter to the Ephesians, so often emphasizes spiritual riches? This is the same city, the same city where people gave up a lot of valuable scrolls to convert to Christ. This is the same city where a riot happened over money and trade. Is it a coincidence that Paul promises Christians, you have spiritual riches beyond any material sacrifice you could ever make I don't think so I think Paul's point in emphasizing The riches of Christ is this Whatever trade might be hurt By the gospel, whatever temple is Discredited by the gospel, whatever goddess Loses her glory because of the gospel The gospel of Jesus gives us More than we can ask for or imagine The riches that we find in Christ Are greater than whatever We sacrifice to follow him Let's end with a prayer from Paul's doxology in the letter of Ephesians. Let's bow our heads. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.